0: And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that asks if Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and Jacob Rees-Mogg are the so-called dream team of politics, what grim cheese have you been eating before bed and how do I ensure I die in my sleep? This is episode 89, I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week, like Prime Minister and the inspiration for the Laurie Anderson song, Superman, you know, not because she's super, but because she goes on forever without doing anything much, Theresa May, like her, I am also not a quitter, which is why I... Uh, pff, nah, fuck, I can't be bothered. Effort. This week's non-news is that once again, hard Brexiteers, aka Leviathons, aka Sovereignetwats, are supposedly plotting to usurp May in order to take over the Conservative Party and Number 10 to definitely leave the Customs Union and Brexit hard with a vengeance, or something like that. This all happened while May was in China negotiating trade deals with Xi Jinping and telling the world such important things such as how she'd seen Downton Abbey, which is popular in China, but hadn't seen the cartoon Octonauts, probably because she thinks it's a show about the amount of zeros she'll be losing the UK after Brexit. The PM was praised by Chinese press for sidestepping human rights during the talks and to be fair that is pretty pragmatic of her as she usually just wants to stomp all over them until they're dead. And while May was having photos of her painting a dragon because she loves adding colour to a big old myth, back in Blighty this probably not happening coup was stirring. At the helm of this is allegedly the Three Stooges, Govey, Moggy and Bojo, which is proof that it's not a thing because the last time two of those tried to team up it resulted in worst creature in Jabber's palace, Gove backstabbing fat Mutley Boris in order to fail to become Prime Minister all by himself. Also, judging by the last two years of events, any plot by hard Brexiteers will likely result in a lot of bravado and bluster, followed by a lack of planning and a very disappointing finish, which sounds probably not unlike a night with any of the three of them. Gothic wears Wally, who's sadly far too easy to find, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is now the favourite to replace Theresa May, according to a Conservative Home poll, but that's because it's only filled in by people who think The Woman in Black is a holiday brochure. Can you imagine Mogg as British Prime Minister? It'd be like a cry to the world that we want to be seen as a cartoon villain stereotype. It'd be like if Italy elected a brash-talking mobster with a toupee, or Russia elected a bear-shirted, horse-riding authoritarian homophobe, or America elected a leather-faced, sexist media tycoon. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, if Berlusconi does get re-elected in Italy in March and rees somehow succeeds May I'll be certain that there is a global conspiracy to only have leaders that could be end-level bosses in a 90s round-the-world beat-em-up video game As if to further prove he's barely suitable to run an errand, this week Mog accused Treasury officials of fiddling the figures on their Brexit impact assessments, which were leaked by BuzzFeed on Monday about 30 minutes after I uploaded last week's podcast. Yes, the news hates me. Yes, fiddling the figures sounds like a musical about maths. Yes, the Brexit impact assessments surprised absolutely no one by forecasting that the UK is going to be worse off outside the European Union under every possible scenario. I'd also like to assume under every impossible scenario as well. I mean, if a giant beast rose out of the North Atlantic to trash various UK cities with its laser eyes, we'd probably all horribly die after refusing to let anyone in from abroad to help fight it. The assessment entitled EU Exit Analysis, Cross Whitehall Briefing, because anyone who's tried to inform Whitehall about Brexit has got very angry indeed, it was all classed as suspicious by angry thumb Ian Duncan Smith, a man who once said a statement about child poverty was false while sitting in front of a screen that showed the statistic about it. MP Steve Baker, the sort of person you immediately forget even while looking at him, said the report was an attempt to undermine our exit from the EU because, you know, right now that situation is held so loftily high in our opinions. And then Rees Mogg accused the impartial civil service of trying to influence policy because he's the sort of man that if the postman delivered him a bad gas bill, he'd shoot him in the face with a musket. Obviously, he doesn't get gas bills as he warms his home using whale oil. A former leader of the civil service warned that these accusations against civil servants, essentially trying to shut down any evidence that goes against their ideology, are similar to tactics used by German nationalists in the 1930s, which is a stupid comment as that's about 100 years later than any of Mogg's policies. As far as I'm concerned, civil servants are the most polite of all the servants and so definitely wouldn't ruin their impartiality for anything. See also civil engineers and civilians. There has been suitable backlash against Mogg and his cohorts and not just from Bristol students this past week but also from Conservative MP Anna Subri, the aunt in an 80s daytime soap opera, who told Parliament that they are gripped by madness. She meant in the way that the government have been bowing down to Brexiteers, not that Suggs had snuck in and gave everyone an unwanted squeeze. Meanwhile, Home Secretary and someone who definitely jumps the queue at m because she doesn't believe you deserve to be there, Amber Rudd, she said she was not intimidated by the Brexiteers but I doubt she's intimidated by much. I mean, if Pennywise the Clown tried to face her down, she'd probably have him body searched and thrown into a detention centre because he looks a bit foreign. Number 10 has now, to the pleasure of Brexiteers, ruled out staying in the Customs Union, apparently in order to strengthen opportunities for British exporters. Yeah, cool. By making it harder to export, you're strengthening them, right? You know, you're real strengthening those opportunities so that British exporters won't be able to fight them and will die trying. What? Sorry, who's this for again? In more news of unhinged plutocrats scapegoating public workers to disguise their own horrifying levels of failure, President of America and crass attached to a turkey, Donald Trump, is now attacking the FBI thanks to a memo released by House Intelligence Chair Devin Noons, man who proves that job titles by no mean indicate abilities. I mean, he's not even like a chair in that title, far more of a stool. Nunes' memo suggests that the FBI have held bias against Trump for some time, you know, like most people have because he's a tool, and that the Mueller inquiry is some sort of a witch hunt. This is a particularly odd stance from all of them as the FBI is now headed up by people that Trump appointed, but then to be fair I wouldn't trust any of his decisions either. Democrats say that this is a political hit on the FBI, which could have severe consequences if Trump aims to destroy trust in law enforcement for his own benefits. Plus, it'll make future thriller films really weird if the main lead going on the run from the government is an FBI agent. Earlier in the week, Trump gave his State of the Union address, which went on for ages and felt like a greatest shit tour. Really, considering the State of the Union, he could have just given the address as number one shit creek and left it there. Earlier today, Trump took to Twitter to protest against Democrats pushing for universal healthcare by exclaiming the NHS is going broke and not working. I guess he's a fan then, as that sounds quite a lot like one of his business ventures. Nearly former Sinn Féin leader and almost doodle-proof Gerry Adams has said that he'd like to see Labour leader and unfun-sized Papa Smurf Jeremy Corbyn become Prime Minister, which is the sort of endorsement the right-wing press were just praying for. I mean, if Labour are really lucky, Corbyn's next endorsements will come from the ghosts of Stalin and King Herod. Jerry Adams said that Corbyn was outstanding, which no one is sure if he meant Jezzet is exceptionally good or that his policy of what to do with Brexit is still completely unresolved. And lastly, Culture Secretary and man so nondescript, his driving license probably has no pic and just a caption saying, Imagine dreariness in a shirt. Matt Hancock. He has launched his own smartphone app so you too can find out what he's up to and tell him what you think. Considering he got in trouble in 2014 for retweeting a poem about Labour being, and I quote, full of queers, which he said was a total accident, it'll be pretty appropriate if the verb for using his app is handcocking. Hello you lovely bunch, and uh, thanks again for listening to yet another partly political broadcast which no doubt, like last week, will be uploaded to ACAST mere minutes before some big story breaks. Do anyone remember last year when I released an episode four hours before the snap election announcement, rendering the entire episode completely invalid? And then last week the Brexit Impact Assessment Reports emerged at 9.30pm, exactly 20 minutes after I finished editing and uploading episode 88. I can totally and utterly see why people do history podcasts now, because that stuff has already happened. You are never in danger of things getting fucked up as you release it. I mean, you never get a history podcast complaining because five minutes after publishing, the Roman Empire have decided to retract a statement, or Cleopatra's vizier lied on a bus. Sorry, I've no idea why I'm complaining. This is entirely my own doing, which does explain quite a lot. Um, I had a horrible realisation uh, just the other day. I got a new sat-nav recently. Um, it's a really good one with like traffic and stuff on it. Um, and uh, I got rid of the old one because it wasn't working. And only when using this real one, I had a horrible realisation on Friday as I took a wrong turning that, oh, the sat-nav had exactly the right turning on it and it's actually just me that is completely rubbish and that my last sat-nav was probably all right. Oh, it's a hard thing to come to terms with. Um, anyway, uh, thank you this week to Nabil who joined the troop of uh, Patreon people. Um, Bros, is that does that work? No. No. Um, if you want to donate to this show as well, you can also do that at the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash or do a one-off donation you can buy me a coffee thing at uh, ko-fi.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash um, and then I'll use my money to argue with the man that works in my nearest Costa, who keeps insisting that they don't have lots of things that they say they do on the menu behind him. Um, hmm, I mean, it says coconut latte on the wall. What do you mean there's no such thing as a coconut latte? How am I being gaslit by a barista? And yeah, I don't normally drink coconut lattes. I'm not one of those people, but I I just fancied it so sue me um also thank you for the reviews this week and if you haven't reviewed the show and you would like to please hit the five stars or write something nice on the pod app of your choice and if you wouldn't like to then why not write a review of something else you like on there instead i mean i'll be more than happy with a five star itunes review that instead mainly describes your ideal sausages or how the sock suspenders you bought were the perfect present for your dad any of that is fine Uh, No admin this week but I did read a really good long read by Marie Leconte who's been recommended on this podcast before um, and she wrote a piece on Vice all about Britain's version of the Munsters the Johnson family. Um, I popped the link on Twitter and on the Facebook group and it's very worth a read if you can handle swearing out loud at your computer a few times. Um, There's some stuff in there that really does help you realise why they're all such power hungry idiots. Um, One bit I just wanted to read this out to you um, and I'll read read this here right one bit says uh, when Boris Johnson announced his intentions to run for London Mayor in 2007, his father Stanley wrote a column in The Spectator. In it, he hit out against those already calling his son a buffoon, explaining that though he wasn't always organised as he once played the title role in Richard II while at Eton and made up his own lines as he'd not learnt Shakespeare's, he could still do very well at the job. You may have to wing it from time to time, he said, but if you can play Richard II in the Eton Cloisters without knowing the part, you'll probably get away with it. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, that I've just read, but I've done a wee bit of acting in my time, and let me tell you, uh, not learning your lines and making up your own lines instead doesn't mean that you're good at your job, um, doesn't necessarily mean that you really even get away with it, uh, either. It just sort of means you're fucking things up for everyone else in the cast, completely ruining the play and generally being a massive cunt. Um, Anyway, uh, it is worth a read. Trust me, uh, if those are the sort of words you want to shout at your laptop screen. Um, Oh, and it's now uh, T-minus five weeks until B-Day. And I mean the day Tiny Dooyeb is due if they arrive on time. B-Day is probably not a good term for it is it I was sort of thinking baby day but it sounds a lot just like the thing people wash their bums with um what I meant was uh it's just uh, giving you a further heads up we've got five weeks if all goes to plan there'll be five more of these podcasts before a possible brief sudden break depending on how it goes uh if not uh all goes to plan then there is still a chance that this will vanish for a week unexpectedly but we don't know when um and to be fair if tiny do you take after me or my wife they'll probably be exactly the right date but about 20 minutes earlier so just have to stand around and text for a bit trying not to look lonely um I'm sure they're going to be able to do that, right? I mean, that's babies can text and stuff. We did an NCT class on uh, breastfeeding on Saturday, which was really good because I've got no idea how to feed a breast. Um, But during the class, uh, the leader read as... Is that what you call these people take classes? The class taker? The person in chat, the woman that knew stuff. um, She read as a letter from a newborn to its parents. I thought, that is a pretty impressive baby, right? Writing a letter, bloody hell. And it was laminated as well. So, uh, basically, I've got a lot of hope for our kid. Uh, OK, so on this week's show, I interview former MI5 intelligence officer Annie Mashon on Iran. And I'm also going to be looking at Haringey Council, which is all up in my Manor, and the resigning of our decade-long council leader, apparently due to bullying, but also very much more to do with a shitty, shitty redevelopment scheme. But before all of that fucking Brexit. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! So according to a Downing Street source, which I'm guessing is one of those hot sources that pretends to have a kick but is boringly mild, uh, Britain is categorically leaving the customs union because they want to make things better for British exporters. Cool, cool. I mean, this is like being a tiger mum, right? You know, like where you make things real shitty for your kids so they grow up successful or more likely in need of some sort of therapy with irreparable psychological damage. I mean, quick recap, uh, the customs union allows all the EU states to have the same import duties and free trade between them. It's why at the moment you can drag home 90 litres of wine from France all by yourself because you're totally a connoisseur and you don't at all have a problem. Seriously, you're just a collector. No, don't stage an intervention. Whereas from outside the EU, you can only take four litres home, which isn't even enough to need a valid excuse for. Now, sure, this whole thing about not being in the customs union could be a semantics thing, but Downing Street have said they won't be part of a or any customs union, which makes you wonder what will happen with Ireland and the border, but also any future trade with the EU. Then, however, the government did also say that in the Customs Future Partnership paper, it's all clearly set out and proposes a customs partnership or a highly streamed customs arrangement. And a partnership agreement would align precisely the UK with the EU in terms of exports and imports removing the need for customs checks. Cool, cool. So pretty much a customs union then. I mean, this is another, hey, if we rename it, maybe no one will notice thing again, right? Everyone's just gonna either kick off or be ecstatic that we're leaving the customs union despite not really knowing what it is or does And then the next thing we know we'll be part of a customs kinship or a chummy customs rapport or a customs hookup ship ting And it'll all be back to normal again I don't know why we can't just rename all of Brexit to tell people we're not in the European Union But we are just well, you know, it's complicated with it and then just carry on as we were And according to the Brexit impact analysis that leaked on BuzzFeed News last week, that would be the best scenario, as it seems every possible scenario involving the UK leaving the EU will leave us worse off than before. Though, hey, maybe that's what people voted for, right? I mean, what is more British than having even more stuff to complain about every single day? If we leave with a no deal, growth will be 8% lower over the next 15 years than it should be. If we leave with a free trade agreement, it'll be 5% lower. And if we stay in the European Economic Area with a Norway-style deal, it'll be 2% lower. The analysis carried out by officials across Whitehall for use by the Department of Exiting the EU found that every area of the UK will be affected. Every sector of the economy will be affected with cars and retail getting hit the hardest and London will probably lose its status as a financial centre. But hey, those Project Fear guys were dicks, right? All this analysis also assumes we'll have good deals with the US and China, India, Australia and others and whatever we export to them will have to be made in factories warm enough to eschew wearing clothing we can't now buy or driving there in cars that won't exist. But if we don't even get those deals then you may as well replace the forecast with just a loop of the funeral march played on a melodica. And sure, those are only forecasts, and they are only for the next 15 years or so, so there is every chance that we'll get to 2033 and we'll be celebrating Brexit Day with unregulated fireworks that explode in people's hands and whatever seasonal food that we've managed to get picked by someone or overly expensive imports that we've had to ration out. And we'll all think, yeah, thank God for Brexit. But sadly, most of the people who voted for it will be dead by then, so they'll never know. According to disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox the Disgrace, Theresa May's visit to China last week involved an agreement with President Xi Jinping to open up the Chinese market for more British financial services. You know, all those services that will now no longer be part of a financial centre. I mean, how on earth do you sell that? By kind of going, hey, they're sort of ironically shit financial services. Fancy a go? It'll be trendy in a few years. Fox also admitted that being in the EU didn't stop them arranging more trade with China in the first place, even though that was pretty much his reason for backing Brexit. And then he complained that everyone needs to stop obsessing over Europe in a move that I like to call, holy shit, Freudian projections were made for him. Again, this all comes down to the people in charge not being clear about what they want from all of this, probably not knowing what they want from all of this, and every time they try to find out, arguing amongst themselves about who's more wrong about everything. I almost wonder if post-Brexit we're going to find ourselves saved from the brink of destruction as countries hire us to completely ruin trade deals that they don't want to be in with other countries, except they'll probably tell us to make things better, send us in and the whole thing will be closed up and shut down in about two meetings. Our role will essentially be the global Roger Debris for the world's producers. As I'm recording this, Theresa May and sentient belly button fluff David Davis are meeting with EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier. He has said that there is no time to lose, presumably because it's already lost, and that in terms of the UK saying that they won't be in a or the customs union, he respects the UK's red lines. I fully expect some over the top nationalists to take this as him disrespecting the other colours in the union, Jack, while Davis just thinks he's a fan of no stopping roads. Iran, a country often confused with an Apple jogging app when pronounced in that weird American way like I just did. It's also home to one of the world's oldest civilizations, 22 UNESCO sites, some properly great food and my father-in-law. But sadly, as well as those heritage sites, history, yum grub, terrible wordplay gags and my family relations, it's also a country currently on Donald Trump's very long angry list with the US president having threatened to withdraw from the Iran nuclear agreement several times since last year, constantly waiving sanctions and staying in before making a statement about how it's the last one he signed until they make radical changes, with the next headline now currently ending in May. The Iran nuclear deal is something that was pretty lauded by the other five powers who signed it, but Trump's one of those populists who only opts for popularly unpopular policies. An unpopular populist, if you like. The changes Trump wants Iran and Europe to agree to are fixing flaws in the deal, countering Iranian aggression and supporting the Iranian people. And I can't speak for the first of those, but with the other two, you kind of feel like, hey, maybe keep your house in order first year, mate. If threats from an enraged baboon weren't enough, the end of last year and the beginning of this year saw mass political protests in Iran with nearly 5,000 people arrested and over 20 people killed, largely due to upset at economic issues brought in by President Rouhani, but also the hijab laws and a variety of other reasons. Basically, people be angry. So is this the beginning of a new Arab spring, but in the winter, which sounds a lot like a fashion range, doesn't it? Try the new Arab winter selection. Uh, Is Iran about to undergo huge political changes, or will it all be blown up by the US before it even gets there? What is the political situation in Iran anyway? And why, when I ask my father-in-law about it, does he just tell me really long-winded tales about arguing with someone in the airport before giving us large bags of pistachios? Well, this week, I thought it would be really useful to find out because Iran's political situation could affect the rest of the world in terms of the nuclear deal, its connections with Russia and China, and its potential to become a more moderate country overall. So, I spoke to Annie Machon, a former MI5 intelligence officer who now writes, talks and advises on a number of global issues from protection of whistleblowers to being the head of law enforcement against prohibition in Europe. Annie is fully versed in global politics and was able to explain what the situation in Iran currently is and more importantly, why. Now, I should say that as Annie points out, some of the stuff she mentions sounds like conspiracy theories, but evidence for it is findable online, something I've checked just to be annoying. Also, there are some things she says in the second half of the interview on the Trump-Russia connections that perhaps aren't in line with what most of us uh, think, you know, especially us who want to see that man burn in flames, especially because his hair looks so flammable. But again, Ali's views on these things come from a number of sources that you don't normally get on your main news channels. Annie also has a fairly interesting past, both with her previous work at MI5 and her relationship with whistleblower David Shaler, which I'd advise you look up as it's all very fascinating stuff. But we didn't get into any of that, mainly because we had far too much to talk about on Just Iran, and this conversation could have gone on for hours and hours and hours. I called Annie in Brussels over a phone line, so quality is a teeny bit variable, but it should be okay. I mean, I hope we weren't being tapped. I hope you find this chat as fascinating and eye-opening as I did. Here's Annie. We had all the big Iranian protests at the very beginning of this year. Um, what were they all about? Were they economic protests? is it uh some people sort of mentioned it might be the beginning of an uprising like the the arab spring um Does it signal some sort of political change? can you i mean I have no idea what was it all about. <laughs>
1: I think there seems to have been some uh, genuine grievances around the economy, particularly in rural areas, uh, because there, has been, you know, there hasn't been as much growth as was promised after the ending of the sanctions against Iran uh, put in place because they were supposedly developing a nuclear weapon, which turned out to be a load of rubbish. Um, so I think there was some genuine unrest, but the way it played out it seemed to indicate a uh, agent provocateur also being involved, who started physically attacking police stations um, and stirring up the violence. There, course, there was a, you know, a certain degree of violent pushback against that as well by the state, and people were arrested. Um, but I think we need to look at this in, in a sort of longer perspective to get the context of why and how there might be agents provocateurs working in that environment. And I would go back, um, back way back to 1953 for the start of this, um, and so, it's a little bit of a history lesson here, in a way, because we had at that point, um, after the Second World War, Iran had its first democratic uh, vote, and they voted in as president a man called Mossadegh. And this man was then deposed by uh, CIA and MI6, which is the sort of UK equivalent of the CIA, a uh, CIA MI6 backed coup to get rid of him. And they did this. This was instigated, by the way, by MI6, according to the CIA. And they did this in order to uh, depose Mossadegh, who was threatening to nationalize the oil um, and energy industry in Iran. And by doing that, of course, he would have broken the uh, British Iranian oil company, which then evolved into BP, British Petroleum. So there were strong economic reasons why the West wanted to interfere in the Iranian uh, democratic vote at that time. And while this might sound like a conspiracy theory, in 2013, the CIA actually released its documentation around this coup. So, And they've apologised. So they actually went to the Iranians and said, look, we're sorry, we did this. We are sorry now. So it's not some conspiracy theory. This is something the CIA has actually admitted to, although MI6 still keeps quiet about it. So then you have, <laughs> then you have a situation where the uh, Americans put in a, a sort of puppet Shah, who stays in power until uh, 1979, and then he is deposed by the Islamic Revolution, uh, which is you know, which forms the current Islamic Republic of Iran to this day. And this caused the Americans a lot of political grief, a lot of political pain. And ever since then, they've seen the Iranian regime, the Iranian government um, as the enemy and have been working to cause it pain and to subvert it and all the rest of it. <clears throat> so just to fast forward from that to the late 1990s, um, and this is where it gets really interesting, because at that point, Bill Clinton had the White House. The mm. Republicans were out of the cold in American politics. And there was a think tank called the Project for the New American Century, PNAC, which uh, produced this uh, this paper, this uh, report, looking ahead uh, to where, what Americans need to do in the 21st century, In order to safeguard its uh, energy, uh, access to energy reserves, uh, the the buttressing of the petrodollar with the, uh, the oil trading and all that sort of thing. So PNAC published a report called Rebuilding Americans' Defense. And in this report, they basically said that in order to preserve American hegemony for the next 100 years, Uh, to make sure they had access to all the energy reserves in the Middle East, that all those energy reserves would be traded in the petrodollar, which underpins the American economy, uh, that they needed to gain control in a select list of companies across the Middle East. And these include, uh, strangely enough, Iran, Iraq, Syria and Libya. And if you look at what's happened to the other three countries um, since that report came out, and particularly since the war on terror started after 9-11, uh, where are we? We've had Iraq multiply invaded. It's a basket case, or has been for many years. We've had Syria um, attacked, despite the fact that Colonel Gaddafi had sort of come in from the cold and become the best friend of the West in 2004. 2011, NATO attack him because of a, a so-called uprising and the fact he might be killing his own citizens. And now Libya is a basket, basket case. And of course, you know, whatever ghastly things have been happening in Syria for the last seven years are ongoing to this day. And the only reason that President Assad was not uh, was not toppled was because of Russian intervention in 2015, which rather upset the, the the Western approach, the American approach to what they want to do in all these countries. So now what we're looking at is Iran, and it is very easy for the West, for the CIA, who has a track record on this, to uh, manipulate, to uh, accelerate uh, legitimate uh, griefs and concerns within the country. So there might be legitimate need for demonstrations, you know, we're, we haven't got enough food, we haven't got enough money, um, our economy's stalling, and uh, stoking the fires of those um, protests to involve them into a sort of revolution. And then you get the inevitable security crackdown by the government. And then there is a legitimate case for a Western humanitarian intervention in that country. And that's what I think they were trying to do in Iran, as they had successfully done in Libya in 2011.
0: Wow, so... It's so a, a bit of a long answer to a very well, quick it, question. No, it is, but it's <laughs> absolutely fascinating because I think, you know, something that I did know or, or have been reading about was about the economy falling, but it's very interesting to sort of know that while people might be upset about that, these level these protests were kind of accelerated because people, people died in these protests and that does feel like quite uh, a violent protest for, say, you know, uh, being, being angry about uh, problems with the economy. It didn't seem quite... It didn't seem to gel in quite that way, um, but I, so. But I, you know, one of, Iran's had the same regime now in charge since the 1990s. Are people not upset about that? And anyway, that doesn't feel hugely democratic to me. Or is it in the same way that we've had the conservatives for ages? You know, is that how it works there as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. I love this idea that, you know, this country is not a real democracy, but, you know, Britain is or or America is or something like that, where in fact you see time and time again that it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government gets in. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the best way of approaching emotional democracy. Um, no, sure, there are grievances um, in Iran, of course, around the economy, um, perhaps also around things like uh, human rights. Um, however, the way it's being painted in the West now, I think, is very dangerous because we've seen this playbook used by particularly America and the CIA time and time again across the rest of the pla- uh, the rest of the planet you know for decades now um, and probably one of the other most recent cases was in Ukraine uh, where we had the uh, where we had the Americans paying up to five billion dollars over a five year period of time to try and stir up uh, resentment about the Yanukovych regime the Yanukovych government. Um, And then he was toppled after some violent protests, uh, the Maiden protests, as they called, in uh, 2014, I think it was. And he had to flee to Russia for his life. And now more and more information is coming out that the people who were uh, ramping up the violence of those protests uh, were of, shall we say, dubious (laughs) backgrounds. Yes, we also know from the uh, UN representative in charge of Eastern Europe at the UN, um, Victoria Newland, she had an intercepted phone call, which uh, she basically said um, that they don't want that president in, in place anymore. Um, they noted that the EU was concerned about what was unfolding in Ukraine. And her view was, um, excuse the French, fuck the EU. And that's what she was recorded as saying. So, you know, this playbook is sort of the way that, they, that the West, uh, particularly the CIA, uh, along with its chums like MI6, can stoke up and build on legitimate concerns in a country to affect a coup to put someone that they wanted in place in the government of that country and get rid of people who might not be favourable to the Washington agenda is a well-known playbook. It's been used for decades, and I think that's what they were attempting to do in Iran uh, earlier this month. What was interesting is that uh, President Rouhani in Iran reacted very differently, and he said, you know, we don't want to be repressive. We want to hear the concerns of the protesters, and that sort of dampened down a lot of the anger.
0: Right. Because I, th- that's the other thing that I sort of found interesting in that wanting to start trouble in Iran. But previously, you know, Iran had kind of, uh, Rouhani had reached out, uh, hadn't he, to kind of UN Security Council permanent members? Was that in 2015? Um, and then, of course, there's the Iranian nuclear deal. So it sort of felt like things, they were all right with a lot of countries. It didn't feel like there were a lot of issues there. And it, feel, it, it sort of feels to me re- that the recent Iranian thing has been kicked up again by Trump and wanting to withdraw the nuclear deal. So... Why is why is those why have those kind of relationships changed? That's a very good question.
1: <laughs> and we have a situation where um, it has been reported that the national directors of security uh, for both America and for Israel had a meeting last December and signed a joint understanding. Now, Israel has always seen Iran as an existential threat. Uh, they have always tried to push America to take action against Iran. And under the PNAC plan, we know that America wanted to take action against Iran anyway. So the fact that this uh, un- this joint memorandum of understanding has now been signed only a month ago might explain why things were suddenly ramped up in Iran. But we've been here before. So you go back to the uh, Northeast, go over 10 years ago, and America, even at that time, was trying to push to attack Iran along, you know, by the, the lines of the PNAC playbook. And... At that time, the only thing that stopped them invading Iran, as they had already invaded uh, Iraq, was the leaking by a very principled government employee called Dr. Tom Finger of the National Intelligence Estimate, which was an investigation and a concerted thinking of all 17 of America's then intelligence agencies about exactly what Iran was trying to do with its nuclear program. So basically, the American government under George W. Bush wanted this national intelligence estimate to say very clearly that Iran was still trying to develop a nuclear weapon. And they would use that um, as an excuse, as they had done when they went into Iraq about the weapons of mass destruction, as an excuse to attack Iran. Unfortunately, the NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, came to a different conclusion. It said that Iran had actually stopped trying to develop its nuclear weapons in 2003 when the Ayatollah Khomeini... Um, issued a fatwa saying that, you know, this is against uh, Shia Islam principles, we're not going to use weapons mass destruction. So it stopped. So any other research they've been doing around nuclear energy was to their energy sector. And this report was going to be subdued and hushed and up by the Bush administration. And it was only because it was leaked by Dr. Tom Finger that suddenly the cat was out of the bag. And in fact, George W. Bush in his memoir had to say that because of this leak, it stopped the rush to war against Iran in 2008. So that was taken off the table. The uh, national intelligence estimate, by the way, has been uh, reaffirmed every year since that Iran is not trying to develop a nuclear weapon. Under the terms of the deal, where the sanctions were lifted, it has made, been made very clear that they have um, the most intrusive investigatory powers to check that Iran is not trying to still develop a nuclear weapon. And they affirm that that is the case. So what the hell is George Bush, uh, for, uh, Donald Trump's Freudian slip. What the hell is he and his minister- administration doing um, saying they don't qualify the uh, nuclear deal with Iran? You think that Iran is trying to break these sanctions? That's a load of crap, to be quite
0: frank. Sure, which, I mean, to be fair, it's not that I, I, I don't expect crap from him at all. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what we've just uh, come, to, uh, come to assume he's doing now. But then that's... Yeah, it, it does seem very odd that he's kind of uh, stoking that up again. You said that, that obviously, it's after this meeting with Israel, the the Iran-Israeli conflict, that's been happening for quite some years now. There's been tensions between the two of them. Um, Mm. Do you think that's the next crisis in waiting? Because there's been a lot of talk about how, you know, people are looking to that as possibly the next Middle Eastern war.
1: Uh, I I don't think Israel will do anything against Iran unless it's absolutely certain that the US will back them. Um, So I suppose what's slightly concerning um, at the moment is that the U.S. does seem to be getting closer to the Israeli position on Iran again. So, you know, it's only a decade ago that America was forced not to attack Iran by this leak from this whistleblower. Um, And now we're back into a situation where quite probably that will happen. But it's also interesting as well, looking at Donald Trump, um, because he has to sign off every six months on the uh, lifting of sanctions against Iran because of the nuclear deal. And you know he's gone right up to the wire this month about not signing it and then finally getting around to it. And in six months, he probably will do the same thing. And that is interesting because that feels like gameplay to me in the sense that America is not pulling out of the nuclear deal as well because none of its allies in the West want the US to do this. But by signaling that they might every six months not re-ratify the deal, that means that international investors are being put off from from investing in, in the Iranian economy, so effectively what he's doing is by creating this doubt he is um, should we say in a casual way trying to stop um, the the bad effects of, of the sanctions so effectively by causing doubt, people are not going to invest so in fact the Iranians might not like shouldn't have bothered to sign the deal in the first place because they're not getting any benefit from it, whereas they have uh, very invasive investigations um, carried out in the country in order to ensure that they're, they're actually carrying out their side of the Iranian nuclear deal. So it's very clever gameplay by the White House. I'm not sure if it's coming from Donald Trump himself, but it's certainly coming from the uh, military industrial complex in the West, the deep state.
0: God, that's really devious. Uh, if that's their aim, that's really quite upsetting. And yeah, I kind of assume it's not coming from Donald himself. But there you go. Who who knows? Um, but uh, you, you mentioned earlier about the about the protests, about how Rihanna kind of dealt with them by saying they wanted to listen to the protest. Do you think that? Um, uh you know I, and i know you've already mentioned that a lot of the kind of ideas that we hear about them um uh, being awful with human rights and stuff is stuff that we has kind of been put on to us um, but uh do you think that then iran are heading for a very sort of far more moderate government with with rani kind of more listening to the voters do you think he's going to pull back on some of the economic measures in order to uh, make things work for people again
1: I think they're doing their best. Um, I think also there has been a relaxation of some of the more draconian measures. Um, but there is a pivot as well. The other issue is uh, the, the building of uh, an, an alliance, I think is the best way putting it, with China and, of course, with Russia. I mean, Iran has always been, to a certain extent, a client state of Russia's, um, which is what's caused you know, a particular ire from America and from Israel as well. Uh, but at the moment, we see China is trying to build up these new Silk Roads um, of various regions. And they're working very closely with Russia to do this and uh, have signed many treaties. They've had many high-level meetings over the last year. And one of these pivots has been for Iran, uh, which co-owns one of the biggest gas fields in the world, which it co-owns with Qatar, by the way, uh, to cut a deal with China, to a pipe this gas to China. So it fulfills China's energy needs. Now, this is also fascinating because China is beginning to uh, underwrite and to trade its energy, not in the petrodollar, but in yuan, its own currency, and to back up these deals with gold. They've been buying gold like crazy for years now. So they've got huge reserves. So you have a situation where Iran suddenly has a lifeline because it can sell its, um, its energy reserves to China. And that is particularly interesting because, as I said, they co own this vast gas field uh, with Qatar. And do you remember at the end of last year, Qatar was suddenly demonized by the rest of the Gulf states? Yeah. And everyone's thinking, well, why, why now? Why now? And for many years, Qatar and Saudi Arabia cozied up and they were helping build the, the gas pipeline using the Qatar bit of the gas field through Syria into Europe. And I always postulated that might be a reason why uh, they were trying to uh, get rid of President Assad, because he was working with the Russians and the Iranians to build a rival gas pipeline to use the Iranian gas going into Europe. So it gets really murky here. Yeah. So suddenly Qatar signed this deal to work with Iran to sell their combined gas reserve to China um, and to build up this new sort of uh, Silk Road pipeline. And you have a situation where suddenly Qatar is being stigmatized and demonized and ostracized by the rest of the Gulf states. And I think that sort of makes sense. The key thing under this is that uh, many of these countries are now beginning to move off the petrodollar uh, standard and starting to trade their energy in other currencies. So you've got uh, Iran over the last few years has been trying to deal some of its uh, energy reserves, its oil reserves, in euros. And now, of course, they be trading in the Chinese market in one. In so we have a situation where um, the American petrol is no longer going to be the, the only, only currency that you can trade oil in around the globe.
0: And that's really going to hit their economy. And I think that's what they're terrified of. And we'll be back with Annie in a minute. But first...
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves...
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I often feel like the London Borough of Harringay can be summed up by the signs that you see as you enter it. While other parts of the country may welcome you to their country or... While other parts of the country may welcome you to their county or area, our signs just say Harringay. Here it is, take it or leave it. No welcome, just fact. I've lived in Haringey pretty much my entire life and I've seen it change from a place where my road was regularly cordoned off for stabbings and shootings as I was growing up to it now having more fancy coffee outlets than a Vietnamese weasel farm. It's where I was born, where I went to school, where I got married and where I now still live. I don't know what the term for a lifelong Haringeyer is but it's probably not Haringeyer as that sounds wrong and exactly the sort of thing the people of Haringey would protest against. Whatever it is, I am it. Like a lot of London, Haringey is hugely mixed in terms of class and ethnicities. It's been Labour pretty much forever with a brief Lib Dem spell in the middle and nearly 80% voted for Remain in the EU referendum. Why am I telling you about this lefty bubble I live in, the pinnacle of metropolitan liberal elite that makes you wonder why UKIP haven't declared war on us yet? Well, because this week, my borough has been national news thanks to council leader of 10 years, Claire Coba residing. Because, as she says, of bullying from Labour members and momentum, including sexist abuse, which is seriously not on and should be dealt with, and singing songs, which personally I think sounds alright, unless it was really out of tune. Now, I'm not going to dispute the bullying, uh, because uh, that needs an investigation in itself, itself and it's really horrible if she has received sexist abuse. I mean, the internet nowadays is basically only used for harassment, but what I will dispute is that according to the press, this is all the fault of Labour grassroots campaign momentum and the sign of what a Jeremy Corbyn government would look like, aggression and abuse and forcing people out whose views they don't share. Except, living here in Haringey, that's definitely not what we've seen at all. And by we, I mean as in me and the neighbours I never talk to unless I have to collect an Amazon package from them. Seriously, people at number 32, that's like the sixth one you've kindly taken in for me. And I am grateful, but why do you need to ID me every time? Who do you think you are? Sorry. Look, let's start with the Haringey redevelopment vehicle. Something that sounds like maybe a fun bus full of things to make parks nice, but it's actually a scheme forced through by Haringey Council to create a private company with a private developer called Lendlease. This company will then take over £2 billion of housing estates, schools, public facilities, and private housing too, and regenerate them. And what's wrong with that, you might say, just days after Carillion collapsed and ruined a ton of public developments? Shortly, parts of the borough need regeneration, and more housing would definitely be a good thing, right? Especially Especially when 9,000 Haringey residents are waiting for a council flat. Right, and don't call me Shirley, except this is a 25-year fixed plan of a huge scale, which includes no mention at all of any social housing and only 40% of planned houses will be affordable, which, if we all remember, means... Affordable housing is not affordable because it is 80% of market rates. It is more affordable Unaffordable housing But other than that, hey! It's It's not great. great. Plus, the plan also includes the demolition of thousands of social housing homes in order to build private, unaffordable homes. And while everyone who will be displaced from all of this has been promised they can move back into a redeveloped estate, various clauses mean that that doesn't actually apply if you're a housing association tenant or leaseholder, or if you live on certain properties that will be affected later in the HDV contract. So that's not a promise then, is it? I mean seriously, have they not read any tedious Facebook memes? And on top of all of this, a company who admits they only buy properties to sell them on for profit and have promised very little community space is turning the lovely grade 2 listed town hall I got married in into a boutique hotel. But ha, joke's on then, because some of our guests vomited in places that they'll never find. But... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a council who are lacking in funds but spent £86,000 on a new logo that looks like it was drawn by a stupid child with a broken crayon, or £44,000 out of the HDV regeneration budget on a jolly to can for five of them to attract investment, maybe they are doing this in the public interest. I mean, maybe a council who had three members who met with Lendlease before the scheme was approved as part of a shadow board where they had £450 dinners while at the same time were scrapping meals on wheels in the borough, and in all of this without the rest of the council knowing, and did include it in the cabinet papers because apparently it was boring, maybe, just maybe, this proposal they have of the Haringey Redevelopment Scheme is actually a really good thing. I mean, how can you spend 450 quid on dinner and then call it boring? What on earth were you eating? Quinoa? And how can a shadow board be boring when it sounds like something villains attend? Oh, wait, I suppose it could just be for cover on the beach, couldn't it? A shadow board. That is quite dull. Um, So there's been a local movement, which, yes, Momentum have been part of, as have local Lib Dems and Greens and other Labour members and our local Labour MPs, Catherine West and David Lammy, and residents, and even me and my wife and my family and several friends and all the people in our NCT group who I didn't even know until a few weeks ago and probably the person who interrogated me just to get my package and more to make sure the candidates who've been selected to run for May's local elections this year are opposed to the HDV. The current councillors voted to push through, though, with HDV no matter what at a meeting in early January, knowing they'd no longer be in their seats by the time it comes to fruition, which is pretty devious. But after COBA set down on January the 30th, an announcement was made that all further HDV decisions are up to the councillors that are elected in May. The whole process is currently being reviewed in the High Court after a local resident brought the case on grounds of it being an unlawful action, and the decision is expected soon and while this is a national story because it seems according to headlines a council leader got viciously sung at it's actually a national story because local residents have fought against privatisation it's a national story because Lendlease are involved in a lot of long term fixed contract regeneration projects including some they made with the Kensington and Chelsea councillor who approved the cladding for Grenfell Tower and because while councils have suffered 40% of funding cuts something that we've also seen this week as Conservative-run Northamptonshire council has cut all non-legally binding expenditure making the lower income end of your residents. Homeless is not the key to giving your area a boost Hopefully the HTV is now clamped And will be towed away like so many of the vehicles in our borough With such ridiculous parking restrictions God, you have to be careful And hopefully people will get to stay in their area Where their only real gripe is having to take photo ID Round to number 32 Just to pick up a Dunlop bag that they've ordered Because somehow they think they're the post office or something I mean, why would anyone commit identity fraud for a 20 quid bag? Why? Who does that? And now, back to Annie it's interesting you're saying uh, a lot of um a lot of america's kind of policies and actions towards the middle east have been to protect their own oil and uh petrol interests um we've seen that russia now uh quite heavily in the middle east obviously with syria and with iran as you've mentioned and we're trying to kind to intervene at the same time now like, is there does this kind of explain a possible russia u.s co- collusion if that is so as we're hearing at the moment with all the the uh you know the muller um inquiry um does would that make sense then as to kind of combat China's investments? or what, How does that all work? <laughs> is, is there a connection between the three? <laughs> this is a big subject, I know. Um, sure. I do talk about <laughs> it, <laughs>
1: this quite regularly. No, I've, I've been tracking the whole um, evolution of Rushgate since it started, and it is complete media fabrication. Um, I think it was designed, and this, this does sound a bit conspiratorial, but I'll try and explain, but I think it was designed to ensure that Donald Trump's uh, pre-election um, policies, which was to you know try and rework the American-Russian relationship, make it work again. I think it was the deep state, particularly the CIA, trying to hedge him in so that he could not try and rebuild a decent working relationship with Russia, because then everyone would say, oh, it's all true. Russia did get him elected. So where does this come from? Um, the tracking what, how Russiagate evolved. First of all, and this is something that now seems to be le- deeply forgotten. Um, The person who was under investigation when this started was actually Hillary Clinton, because she had been illegally sending emails from a private server, which were work-related when she was the top diplomat in America, the Secretary of State. And this was an obvious violation of of federal law in the US. So they they began to investigate this. Um, And then suddenly uh, there was a leak from the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, uh, both of uh, the DNC emails and also those of the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, at the time. This was back into uh, 2016. And it was interesting that the Democratic Party started saying, Russians have hacked us, the Russians have hacked us, because these leaks appeared on WikiLeaks and showed that the Democratic uh, National Committee had stitched up the nomination for, president, for the presidential candidate, taken it away from Bernie Sanders, and ensured that Hillary Clinton got it. So this was deep malpractice. So they sort of trailed this idea of um, it wasn't a leak, it was a hack. And it must have been the Russians hacking us in the media to try and take attention away from the actual legitimate story, which was Hillary Clinton's illegal email server and the 30,000 missing official emails. And then it sort of gained traction and suddenly the Russians must have hacked uh, the DNC. Suddenly, the Russians must be working cahoots with WikiLeaks to have given him uh, given Assange the emails. Even though he has said very clearly it was not a state level actor, it was a leak. Other people involved with WikiLeaks have said the same thing. Even the person who was handed the leak, former UK ambassador Craig Murray, said it was the same thing. So yeah, this this was a fake story, but it, of course it got a lot of traction, and it was built on particularly by um, some of the newspapers in America including the Washington Post, which made its name by exposing Watergate, which was a sort of 1970s version of the hack of the DNC. Um, and it sort of built from there into noble from there. So suddenly it was the Russians hacked the DNC. Then it became the Russians hacked the election. Then it became the Russians um, rigged the election in favour of Donald Trump because he was friendly towards them. Uh, then it became the Russians hacked the energy grid, which was a fake story. And it's, it's just become a fact now. You know, it's the... The old um, edict of, of Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi communications chief, and he said, "You tell a lie once, it's uh, it's a lie. You tell a lie a thousand times, it becomes the truth." And that's what we've seen with the whole RussiaGate thing. So I think it it, it basically started as a, a potential um, you know, dig to the Hillary Clinton email scandal crime, um, and now it's become a sort of you know zombified, walking dead fake story. But it means that the Russians are demonized. It means that the Trump administration cannot be seen to try and ameliorate the relationship with Russia, which would be in the whole world's interest. <laughs> um, because then it will be you know, called out as proof that, in fact, he was helped by the Russians winning the American election. So, you know, a, bit of a sort of chicken and egg thing, I think, situation. Sure. And I can't see how Trump can get out of it.
0: Sure. I mean, I suppose the question is whether you you know, you know want him to for perhaps the, the reason of truth, but it, as you said, it would be quite handy then if he doesn't <laughs> for other reasons. Um, that's well, the deep, yeah, the deep state, yeah,
1: the deep state really don't want him to be in a position where he can try and improve the working relationships with Russia, um, which I think is a tragedy because this sort of artificial ramping put into the Cold War, as they call it, could eventually end up as a hot war. And, of course, Russia and China are now incredibly close with all these new road deals and treaties they've been signing so America as a nuclear power wouldn't just be be facing Russia as a nuclear power it would also be facing China and potentially Iran which by the way of course is still to this day not a nuclear power
0: <laughs> sure Wow so where do you what, what, I mean, if, if you were able to predict what happens next, then is there kind of, do you think that this, uh, we're kind of going to end up with a stalemate with this, with the Iranian nuclear deal for quite some time uh, as Trump keeps pretending to put the sanctions on then doesn't? You know, where, where does this go next?
1: I think that's precisely what's going to happen. That he, you know, he or whoever is, is ordering to do this now um, is going to make sure that there is uncertainty that continues. You know, will he ratify, will he not ratify for the next six months this deal uh, in order to keep, uh, people wary of trying to invest um, in Iran. However, what we're seeing is, you know, because of these new Silk Road initiatives and this new deal which uh, Qatar and Iran have cut with China for the gas reserves, which is worth, I think, about 600 billion dollars or something. Um, that Iran, of course, is going to pivot ever more towards the east and to the north. So we're going to see this sort of build-up of this uh, collaboration between Russia and China, Iran, and of course their involvement in the whole BRICS. Um, network as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's Brazil, it's Russia, India, China and South, America, uh, South Africa all working together, all uh, beginning to trade their energy in currencies other than dollars, all beginning to set up a, a, an investment bank for poorer countries, particularly in Africa, which completely avoids the influence, the mine influence, I would say, of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank that tends to assist uh, countries when they help them out. So this is a huge power shift I would suggest towards the BRICS countries, and um, it's a huge power shift and a huge threat away from the US and a huge threat to the US economy because they are what 20 trillion dollars in debt at the moment. They keep printing money, and they predicate this on the fact that um, they are under underpinned by the petrodollar. The petrodollar goes; it's no longer the the currency of choice for energy trading. Then the American economy is so screwed.
0: Wow, so we could just see a complete change of where the power is probably within the next five, ten years.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's already clear that China's economy is going to outstrip the American uh, economy in the next few years. It hasn't done already. So, you know, there, there is a big power shift going on at the moment. And I think... Um, what we're seeing with America is it's sort of in denial and uh, the last thrashings of a dying economic beast. I don't know, which is why they're, they're in uh, Trump in, in such a way. And I think he could probably see it. And that's why he was trying to to rejig certain diplomatic relationships. But he's been penned in by the fake Russiagate story. So he can't act. I, I don't know. It's, that's just my, my uh, it's not just my views. I mean, I, I do a lot of work with uh, the former intelligence professionals and whistleblowers and people like that who have been you know, working for decades in these environments. And they're pretty much saying the same sort of thing. It's almost like you can see the writing on the wall, but the American um, deep state or the American government is just holding hands over its eyes saying, I can't see it, I can't see it. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist, Right.
0: So, out of interest, I mean, because obviously of, of your uh, background in MI5 and working with intelligence officers, do you just ignore the news? Is it completely pointless for you to watch it? <laughs> because, um, you know, it just it would seem to me like you, you'd, you know, it would just be a waste of your time watching this going, well, that's not right and that's not right.
1: It's a weird one. Um, I mean, I had this even when I was on the inside. You know, if I'd be working, I could be working on an operation, you get a good result, um, and you see the headlines in the news, you know, this attack has stopped or, you know, this. These weapons were stopped, or whatever it is, and you know the whole background. So it's just like the tip of the iceberg in the media. So even when I was on the inside, I get that feeling of disconnect from the mainstream news to a certain extent. Um, but now, yeah, I mean, of course, I watch the mainstream news, but more for um, entertainment value and a good laugh. Than actually, trying to learn anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was the, uh, one of the best ways I find for getting news is um, I do like Twitter. I'm very wary, as most, most social media, particularly Facebook, is a spy's dream, don't do it. But Twitter is quite good. Um, if you follow interesting people from around the world, you get a heads up on interesting subjects and stories that you want to follow. So that can be very good. But um, in terms of other media, uh, the other website I would recommend would be something called Information House, ICH. And this is like a sort of yeah, it's like a sort of aggregator site site. Of um, very prestigious journalists from around the world writing um, from their perspectives, which might not necessarily be the sort of the mainstream Western media perspective, but it gives you some other perspective that you can try and work with and assimilate. It's not that they're always right either, but at least you can begin to assess things for yourself.
0: Thanks to Annie for the chat. There is a lot to think about in all of that and as I often find with things like her, as Annie calls it Russia Gate, I am completely unqualified to say what to believe on any of it. But while Annie's view opposes things we've heard on previous interviews on this podcast or various press outlets her sources are from global intelligence so are just as if not more plausible than others. Um, even if that throws what you want to believe into disarray it's important to hear all of it. Um, it's, God, it's conversations like that that make me really realise I have no actual clue what is going on most of the time. You can find Annie Annie on Twitter at Annie Machon, that's A-N-N-I-E-M-A-C-H-O-N or on her website at about.me forward slash Annie Machon and she is doing lots of talks in London and Manchester in March via uk.funzing.com which you can attend by searching for them on that site and the site that she referred to if you want to check it out is informationclearinghouse.info I've got the next two, possibly three weeks of guests sorted, I think, but if you have anything you'd like me to find someone to interview about or someone specific you'd like me to chat to, please do let me know via at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could build a giant nuclear reactor and fire your message using neutrino beams so that the Super Kamiokande facility in Japan picks them up and spends years trying to decipher it, by which point Trump will have already denounced war on you for having such an unregistered large nuclear base and most of the planet will be dead. It's much easier to just email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thank you for listening once again. And please do donate to the Patreon and Kofi. Review on all your favourite and least favourite podcast sites. Tell people to listen, you know, to the show and your ideas in general. God, it's so rude how they ignore you all the time, isn't it? It's like you're not even there. And get in touch about anything you like from ideas as to which guests I should try uh, to... All the... And get in touch about anything you like from ideas as to which guests I should try to get all the way to the best song you can play by tapping on your teeth or your favourite ancient witch's remedy for breaking hexes put on you by angry Costa employees. Big thanks as always to ACAS for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the musics. This will be back next week when no doubt I'll be looking at the replacement for the customs union between the UK and the EU, the so-called Traditions Unison. Au revoir! This week's show was brought to you by the new children's puzzle book, Where's Jacob? A series of colourful pictures of progressive activities, and you have to try and spot just where the Dickensian nightmare is trying to turn back time in every image. Oh look, it's a huge pro-choice march full of like-minded people who believe a woman's body is her own. And look, there he is, like a ghost you don't notice until the image is developed, wanging on about how it's all morally indefensible. Oh, Jacob... Fun for all six of your neglected and stupidly named children. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts.
1: Here's a show that we recommend.